welcome, and then we'll, we'll dive into the word. So this is Scogginsburg. I didn't make that up. It's his real name. <laughs> um, and he has been coming to our church for forever. So um, he's here to just to share God's word with us, but I wanted to ask him a couple questions just so you could get to know him like I know him. So, so Scoggins, uh, just, I mean, honestly, just tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of how did you get here, why you're here, a little bit about that. Um, yeah, it was, at, it was 12 years ago um, was my first time here actually in this theater uh, when this service launched here before it went over to Lucas. Um, my wife and I were missionaries, um, and this church uh, was one of our amazing supporters. Uh, and so that was initially how we got connected here in Savannah. My mom's side of the family grew up here in Savannah. I grew up coming here a lot, visiting grandma, and, and my wife and I and kids um, have been back here six years. So you, you mentioned that you were a missionary. Where were you a missionary and for how long? We were missionaries in Bosnia. Um, in Southeast Europe uh, after the war. We, we went over as college students uh, for a summer and fell in love with the people and the culture and a few years later we had an opportunity to go back full time. So we did that. Um, we were there for six years, um, 02 to 08. And, uh, and then I came back uh, to one of our sending churches in Cincinnati and jumped on staff with them and then, and then here. Awesome, so you're married. Yep. How many kids do you have? Three. Names? Uh, Solomon is nine, Asher is four, and Bjorn, Bjorn, uh, as the Vikings say, Bjorn, uh, he is one and a half. Yep. I, I wanted to get there, so we got there. Um, I'm Norwegian background, I had to give the last son a Norwegian name. Yeah, makes sense, yeah. makes sense. Um, so, so what do you do now? I work for a nonprofit. It's called The One Campaign. Um, Not the same one. Not the same one. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, it was founded by Bono from U2, uh, and we are an advocacy organization that fight on behalf of the extreme poor in sub-Saharan Africa. So we mobilize uh, people globally to um, develop relationships with our elected officials who make decisions about uh, how your budget money, your tax dollars um, impact the global poor. Awesome. Awesome. So. Um, we're in this Christmas series, really excited about that. Can you give us just a little, little tidbit or something, um, what we're expected to hear or what you're kind of expected to talk about? Uh, we're going to talk about uh, an amazing gift for you. Um, that's it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Secretive. Love it. All right, well, this time, right now, in this opportunity, I, wanna, I want you guys to meet uh, Scoggins, and I'd love to meet you if this is your first time or if you've been coming for, forever. I'd love to see you guys. So the band's here, Scoggins is here, I'm here, and we'd love to come meet and just talk with you guys. Okay, as I, as I mentioned, um, an amazing gift awaits us. Um, let me put this right here. I had an amazing gift uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, sitting here in the corner seat during communion, and Eric was um, giving uh, communion to everybody, and just sitting there with my eyes closed, and I, over and over, I just kept hearing the body and blood of Christ. The body and blood of Christ. That's, a, that's, that's an amazing gift. Um, but... 
The year was 1984. It was a magical year. I know what you're thinking. No, no. It, it wasn't the year that the first Apple Macintosh computer was for sale. No. No, no, I know what you're thinking. It, it wasn't the year that the first astronaut was in space untethered with a jetpack. No, no, it wasn't that. It, no, I know what you're thinking. It was not the year that the country of Brunei uh, gained independence from Great Britain. It was the year that I was eight years old. And it was the year that my parents gave me tickets to see Michael Jackson's victory tour. Now, I know in Michael Jackson's later years, uh, a lot of controversy, a lot of really, really bad things. But in 1984, he was the magic man. He could sing. He could dance. Um, he could, in the coolest way possible, say beat it to these tough-looking dancers in a warehouse. It was amazing. Um, and, uh, and so, like any good eight-year-old would do in preparation for this concert, I had to get everything that he had. I think we have a picture. Um, I found that jacket. Tons of zippers on that jacket. Grabbed that jacket. I grabbed parachute pants. I don't know if any of you know what parachute pants are. They also had a lot of zippers. Got the parachute pants. 1984 was also the year the first Michael Jordan shoes came out. Had those on. Went to that concert. Had the glove. It was amazing. Inspired. Came away from that concert wanting to be more like Michael Jackson. I, particularly, I wanted to dance like Michael Jackson. Now, I'd already gone to you know, uh, classes for doing the moonwalk. Aced that. Got that down. But I, what I wanted to know is how to break dance. And back then, that was hard to find. No one was really giving dance classes or anything like that. But my mother, the amazing woman that she is, we were living in rural Indiana at the time. She found dance, break, break dancing classes in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, in the city. And so she signed me up. And two weeks later, I, I go to this uh, break dancing class, and um, all suited up. Um, uh, it was, I think I have a, an embarrassing picture. This is actually not me. How did that get up there? This is actually Matt Meese. Uh, I don't know if any of you know Matt Meese. Uh, he and his wife, Michelle, have been longtime members here of, of the church. They're co-owners of this theater. He sent this picture to me in a private message. And of course, this needed to be shown to the world. This is his brother here. Um, but this is what I, now I will say, actually, I looked even more embarrassing. I had all of this on. I actually sat in the car, I, I, you know, I wanted it, this was going to be like a beat it video. I was going to walk in this place, there are going to be tough looking kids. I even got those gloves that like cut out the fingers, you know, I was like going back and forth, should I add the gloves? I walked into this place, strong, strong expectations, and it felt like 30 set of eyes like turned in on me, and I looked around, and there were little girls in their leotards, um, mothers of girls in their leotards, kids with tap shoes on, 
I'm looking, scan, you know, there's a few kids with some sweatpants ready to break dance, and I'm like, I, I just look down at myself, and I'm like, okay, just totally shocked, and I kind of just, you know, uh, walk on out of there. My, you know, I had such strong expectations, totally shocked. Um, what I thought was going to be in my head visibly, it was not a Beat It video. 2,000 years ago, there was a group of people who had very, very, very strong expectations, strong desires, a, a visible, clear perception of what they wanted to see happen. We're going to watch a video um, that will help frame things for us this morning as we continue in this series of Who is Christmas For? And I have to say, before we watch this video, um, I, I showed it to my kids this week. Now, my oldest is nine, and he's actually grown up over the last couple of years listening to this song. And so I said, hey, Solomon, come on. <laughs> you know, hey, remember this song? And he, like, you know, looked at it. He's like, politely, okay, good, great, thanks. Kind of went back to, to playing. My four-year-old, who's never heard the song before, I said, Asher, come over here. Check this. This is pretty cool. And he, and he just watched it for a minute, and he literally said, this is the most boring thing he's ever seen. But great, great news for you this morning. My one-and-a-half-year-old loves this song, all right? Uh, he got mad when I, when, I, when I snatched it away. So enjoy this. Slipped into the world like anyone, 
Israel expected or wanted was a baby born with animals on the run by illegitimate parents. That is about the last thing on the people of Israel's mind when this happened. Now last week, uh, Grant introduced us to Isaiah 9. Uh, to kick off this series. And um, uh, I'd like us to focus uh, on one particular verse of Isaiah 9. You know, if you weren't here last week, this was the foretelling by Isaiah of what was going to happen. Um, That this ruler, this uh, justice uh, bringer would come, this king would come, and what I'd like us to do, even though we focused on, um, on it last week, I'd like you to just take just a, a few seconds to read this uh, on your own, uh, just to absorb it here for, for a few seconds, please, if you would. So, if you are a person in Israel, and you read, of the greatness in his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. If you read that, you are expecting this amazing Savior to come rushing in the people of Israel, the, the, the history there, gosh, you know, they, uh, at the beginning, they were slaves in Egypt, right? For hundreds of years, slaves in Egypt. And then they were set free, wandered in the desert 40 years. Then they had about a thousand years of decent things happening. And then the Assyrians came in, took captivity again sent them off as exiles. A couple of hundred years later, we read about uh, during uh, the series on Daniel, the Babylonians come in. They're, they're, they're captives again. And then when this story picks up about Jesus, the birth of Jesus, they're occupied by Romans. And so if you're a, a person of Israel, you are longing. You are desperate for God to turn things upside down. But they were wrong. They got a baby. Now the people of Israel, they, they um, when you read through the Gospels, um, there's some commonality as it relates to getting things wrong. I was on a trip uh, recently driving in the car. It was a long road trip, and I downloaded the, an app that uh, you can hear the Bible. It's an audio version. I chose the kind of semi-dramatized version just to keep me awake. Uh, 
along with my sunflower seeds. If you drive, sunflower seeds keeps you awake. And I listened to the book of Matthew. Listen to the whole thing. It was like listening to a novel. And two or three hours, and I was just listening to that story. And what struck me during the Gospel of Matthew is how basically 90% of everybody in the Gospels did not understand Jesus. What they thought he was going to say, he didn't say it. said the exact opposite. What he thought he was going to do, didn't do it. Did the exact opposite. You know, his, his disciples... Uh, you know, they, 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 got, they would get scared in the storm. Didn't understand the king of kings was with them. They, they would ask him, who's gonna, in heaven, who's going to sit at your right hand? You know, they just were not getting the message of Jesus. And then the, the, the religious people of the day totally did not get Jesus either. They, you know, they would question him, why are you healing people on the Sabbath? Or why are you eating and drinking with these sinners? Nobody understood Jesus. Their expectations, all of that, they just did not get it. But there were a few exceptions. There were some amazing exceptions to this situation where Jesus had a few interactions with people that blew him away. He was amazed. Three, three I want to share with you. The first story is about a group of friends whose other friend, one of their friends, was really, really hurt, paralyzed. And they heard of this Messiah, Jesus, who could heal. And they heard that Jesus was speaking to a group of people probably similar to this situation in a house they came to the house, tons of people, couldn't even like get through the crowd of people. Um, so one of them evidently had the idea, let's climb up on the roof. Let's go up on the roof of this house and let's pull our friend who can't walk up onto the roof and let's make a hole in the roof. Now, I, I know the... the, the you know, the people here at Savannah Theater, they actually go up on this roof up here. They watch fireworks, and it's kind of cool. So I, can you imagine, like, all of a sudden, right now, things start crumbling down from the roof. Like, like you know, the roof falls through, and you start to see these men up there. I'm sure Jesus stopped. I don't think he kept talking. I'm sure he stopped and looked up, and all of a sudden this man was being lowered down into the room uh, for Jesus to heal him. And Jesus just, he stopped and he was just like, this is amazing. Your faith is amazing. Second story happened when a centurion Roman officer who had a servant, soldier servant, who was really, really sick that he cared deeply for and wanted healed, and he heard of this Messiah, and he sought him out, this, this centurion soldier. And he came to Jesus, and he said, um, please heal, heal my friend, heal my servant. And uh, Jesus was amazed at this scenario for a couple of different reasons, I assume, because 
a centurion Roman officer, a professional soldier of the occupying group of people, the Romans, does not just go and seek out a Jewish teacher rabbi. That, that doesn't happen. They don't lower themselves to that. But he did. Um, and, you know, this centurion, he, centurions, I guess, oversaw maybe 200 to 1,000 different uh, soldiers, very similar to a lieutenant colonel in the army. You know, anywhere from 200 to 1,000 people they oversee. So this was a high-ranking officer. Um, this was a very, very strange situation. It's, it would be similar to a lieutenant colonel, you know, serving in Afghanistan, and a soldier of his is severely wounded, and he hears of, of some Islamic cleric in some small little know-nothing town um, who could heal. And so this lieutenant colonel of the United States Army seeks out this, this Islamic cleric and says, uh, can you, you know, that's the kind of craziness of this situation. And Jesus was amazed. The third story is of a woman who the scriptures don't describe her much, but they just describe her as a sinner who learned about Jesus and heard that he was having dinner at, at Simon's house. And as the story goes, Jesus and Simon or others are, are lounging around the dinner table. And, you know, of course, in those days, they're not sitting up proper. They're lounging, literally lounging. Maybe you've seen pictures of that. And this woman basically walks into this person's house, into Simon's house, doesn't know Simon, doesn't know anyone in there, walks into the house, walks into this room where a large group of people are lounging and eating and talking, and Scripture says she, she kneels down behind Jesus and opens up this bottle of amazingly expensive perfume and just pours it on Jesus' hair. Um, that is about the strangest thing I've ever heard of. It's, it's, it's amazing that, 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 that she did that, and, and, and everybody in the room is like, you know, mad and angry and judgmental. What's going on here, Jesus? Why? And, she, and he said, she's done a beautiful thing. I, you know, as the story goes on, we know that in the coming days, Jesus would die and be buried. And so the idea that he would be buried with the most amazing Chanel number no. five perfume, um, that's, it's, it's, Jesus was just amazed by it and said, For forever, people will talk about this story. <clears throat> what all three of those people, stories have in common <clears throat> is that they were all desperate. Desperate enough to take extreme action. The men lowering their friend through a hole in the ceiling. Desperation. The Roman centurion officer coming to this Jewish teacher rabbi Desperate. The woman coming, the perfume on the hair, 
desperation. Now, <clears throat> that, is, that is something that, on a, on a personal level, I, I can't relate with that kind of extreme desperation. The people of Israel, for hundreds of years, longing. The men on the roof, the soldier, the woman. But I've had a few knocks. I've had a few punches in my life, uh, uh, whether it's economic, employment, desperation. These are my pedicab jeans, pedicabbed here in Savannah for a couple of years, trying to pay bills, uh, kind of is in a desperate economic situation. But the one thing I wanted to kind of share with you on a personal level, um, Actually, 12 years ago, the last time I sat on, stood on the stage and, and talked, um, my brother was sitting in maybe the fifth or sixth row, younger brother, Schroeder. And at the time, we were missionaries in Bosnia, and I was talking just about what we were doing in Bosnia. And that, that, that night, 12 years ago, uh, was actually the last time my brother and I were in a church service together. Uh, two weeks after that, he tragically died. And he was 20. He was a SCAD student, film major there, a surfer, uh, and took following Jesus very seriously. Um, that, was a, that was a major gut punch to me. That, was, uh, that brought me to my knees. That was a second or third round early in the fight gut punch that, that took me down. And I, and I stayed on my knees for a while. Um, my wife and I actually went back to Bosnia, served four more years, had a son, our first son, and came back. And when we came back in 2008, it, uh, we came back with wobbling knees. You know, you see these boxers in the sixth, seventh, eighth round, they're tired, and their knees just kind of wobble, and they're having... We came back just... A lot of things in the, on the field there were hard. We had a young baby. Um, we just came back. It was probably the seventh, eighth round, right? Mix in with that a few years of just anxiety about who we were. You know, we were this team in Bosnia. We were this couple. And now we're back in the States, and we're doing different things, and anxious about the future and who we were and culture and all of these things. And... Marriage just began to spiral. Spiral, 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 spiral. Down to the point where uh, it was done. Separated. I, I came down here to Savannah. She stayed up in Cincinnati. Called the divorce lawyer. Um, it was, it was dunzos. Um, what round are you in? Have you even ever stepped into the ring? Or have you been in so many fights, so many rounds over the years that you are struggling? Hard to even remember it all. Are you a soldier who's done so many tours in the Middle East, they're all starting to flow together and you can't even 
remember all that happened, that, that you saw things that no human really should have to see? Are you a person that doesn't have a job or doesn't have a good job? Or you're resorting to having a job that barely pays the bills and you're just starting to not see the light anymore? Are you a mother with young children and you're exhausted and you're underappreciated by your husband, underappreciated by the world, gave up your career to be with your kids and you're just getting tired and, and the, the destitution is starting to, to come in. Are you single, looking for a spouse the dates just aren't coming along as much as you want them to come along. Getting a little bit desperate. Is this going to happen or not? Are you in school? Looking at the economy? Working hard? Wondering if there's going to be a good job? And you're kind of like, oh man, this is getting a little desperate times here. Now how does these narratives play forward. If you play all of these narratives forward, what happens? Most of the time, what happens? Take a few jabs in the first couple of rounds, leaves you stinging a little bit. Surprise hook. You start seeing double. You go four, five, six rounds, fighting as hard as you can, getting tired. Twelfth round, uppercut out, laying on the mat. When my marriage went down, I got hit so hard on the uppercut, you know, the feet flew up and I just laid back. That's what happens when you play that, that story, that narrative forward, unfortunately. But, I've got great, great news. In some crazy, weird God-designed, cosmic, I don't get it. When you find yourselves in this place of desperation, Jesus shows up. The people of Israel, hundreds of years, searching, Jesus showed up. <clears throat> the centurion, the woman with the perfume, the men in the roof, Jesus showed up. In my, <clears throat> in my marriage, we were laid out. Jesus grabbed us, pulled us both up. We danced, the victory dance. <clears throat> this is good, good news. This is really good news. Job, in the Bible, Satan went to God in the book of Job, and he said, give me, Give me Job, man. Give me Job. Uh, 
You've put a hedge of protection around Job his whole life. He has an amazing piece of land, amazing cattle, amazing wife, amazing sons and daughters. He's rich. Give him to me. Boom. Next day, cattle's dead. Boom. Sons and daughters slaughtered. Boom. The most terrible, painful sores from head to toe. Knocked out. Satan, the scriptures say, roams the land looking to kill, steal, destroy. Uh, who else? Who else? Chris Heron, amazing NBA basketball player, Boston Celtics. Life okay? Feeling a little pressure? Let's add a little bit of uh, cocaine to that weed and, and, and alcohol you've already been taking. Oh, you're going to Europe now? Can't find uh, what you need? Let's, let's, uh, let's get you off Oxycontin, put you on... Um, um, uh, cocaine, heroin, Angie, you're, you're having an okay life so far? Things going okay? All right, let's, let's have your mother die and your marriage fall apart in six months. Let's see what you do. Craig, life going okay? All right. Back pain like you can't handle. Can't do anything. Can't, can't be with your daughters. Can't run, do all of that stuff. Out. Twelfth round. Done. But in these situations, Jesus can show up. And this is a gift. Desperation is a gift. Um, Oswald Chambers, who I read every day, he has a daily uh, kind of book that you can read through. He says, the greatest blessing spiritually is the knowledge that we are destitute. Until we get there, our Lord is powerless. He can do nothing for us if we think we are sufficient of ourselves. We have to enter into his kingdom through the door of destitution. This, this is a gift. And, and, and if you are in the middle of whatever drama, craziness you're in, and I'm sure there, there is. Jesus, in his first public sermon, in front of his first public group of people said, you are blessed. You who are poor in spirit, who, who, who are beggars to be filled spiritually, you are blessed. If you are mourning if you are a place of weakness, you are blessed. If you are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, you're blessed. If people hurl insults at you and you're persecuted and you find yourself in the most ultimate place of destitution and desperation, you are blessed because then I can come and be with you. After everything was said and done with Job, the scripture says that after cattle was taken away, his sons and daughters slaughtered, his uh, boils, painful sores all over his body, they said that he went to a place outside of town called the Masbalach. And in Arabic cities, this was the place where everyone took their trash outside of the city and animal dung. And the scripture says that, that Job went and he, and he sat down in the ashes 
Because this is a place that, that burned everything, right? And so they said that Job sat down outside of the city in the trash heap with ashes all around him, and he took a potsherd, tried to look up what a potsherd was. It's, it's this sharp kind of broken off piece of pottery. And he sat there in the ashes, and he took this thing, and he just began to like cut out the sores all over him. But the scripture said that he did not curse God. And what I, I want you, what I'm asking you to do this morning is to realize that this place right here, though you're in, with your physical eyes, you're looking around and you're seeing trash and ash and poop, that in the spiritual realm, this is success. That he is standing firm and not cursing God in the worst moment of his life. And that, for you, is, is what amazingly through Jesus' death and resurrection that he can come to us then. We are, we're in the 12th round. And if we can stand firm, Jesus then comes and brings that resurrection life into us. If you are at a place of, of desperation right now, embrace the 12th round. I know it is hard, and all you can do is sit in the ashes, but embrace it, because this is victory, and this is going to be new life. If you are at a place where you've had a lot of fights in your life, and you look over it all, and there's been many, many rounds, and you've kept standing firm, praise God for you and keep up the good fight. But woe to you, as Jesus says, woe to you if you find yourself in a comfortable spot. Woe to you if you find yourself with an easy life. Woe to you if you find yourself rich and everything is pretty good. Woe to you if you've made the outside beautiful and you're full of dead bones on the inside. That is Jesus' warning because he can't do anything with that. And if you're in that place, if you look over your life and it's like, well, no, life's pretty good, praise God. There's a hedge around you. There's a hedge of protection that you need to set ablaze. Set that hedge on fire. And it'll be the scariest thing you ever do. But once that hedge is burned up, Jesus can come in. And you'll be in the most vulnerable, scary, out-of-control place. But Jesus can finally come in and take you on the most amazing ride I want to leave you with a blessing from Thessalonians 3. And this is the prayer that, of, of, that I, I hope and wish that God will say to you today, tomorrow, in the future. 
And if you would, I would just like this to be a blessing onto you, and I'd like to read it to you. And if you would just close your eyes as I bless us to end things here, and the band's going to come up. Please close your eyes and, and let, let these words come over you and let this be a blessing of, of, of what can be. We sent Timothy, who was our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. Lord, we praise you, we thank you for your death, your resurrection, and this new life that in our weakness, that in the fire, you come and you fill and you resurrect. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for this good news, this reminder of Christmas that you are for the, the desperate. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, um, like I said, if you are in this place of desperation, um, I am so sorry. And we are all so sorry. And we mourn with you. Jesus, most of all, mourns with you. Stand firm. If you have never surrendered, if you have had this place of privilege and protection of this hedge around you and you think your life is good you think you're doing pretty good on your own I know deep down inside you're trembling because when you control your life that's fear you're, you're, you're always going to be scared about what's going to happen but if you release it if you all need to, for the first time, come and, and, and give your life to Jesus, this resurrection life, grant, uh, prayer team, be down here. Come, 